This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. There are so many needs that many of us have, and just like any other person, some of us are homeless, some of us are not, some of us have jobs, some of us do not. Some of us are being abused, others of us are not. Guess what? Just like all people. The term transgender refers to a person whose sex assigned at birth. In other words, the sex assigned by a physician at birth, usually based on external genitalia, does not match their gender identity. In other words, their psychological sense of their gender. Some people who are transgender will experience gender dysphoria, which refers to psychological distress that results from an incongruence between one's sex assigned at birth and one's gender identity. If primary healthcare professionals are to serve and accompany transgender patients well, what would that look like? What would need our attention? What approaches have proved helpful and supportive? What would accompaniment require from healthcare professionals? Our guests today are either healthcare professionals who are transgender or healthcare professionals who have devoted their professional lives to serving the transgender community. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Shane Snowden, could you introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Hi, I'm Shane Snowden, and I was the founding director of what was for many, many years the only uh, LGBTQ center within healthcare or, or health professional education, and that was the National Center for LGBTQ Health and Equity at UC San Francisco. I'm also the past director, founding director of the National LGBTQ Health and Aging Program at the Human Rights Campaign, which is the largest LGBTQ group in the country. And now I do consulting and I offer education around LGBTQ healthcare uh, throughout the country. And I'm also a divinity student looking at the relationships between uh, healthcare and LGBTQ people. What is the first step for clinicians to understand and offer welcoming transgender care? I think the first thing that clinicians and other staff can do is just ask themselves, how much do I know about transgender people? Because I think a lot of the problems that arise, a lot of the worries that people have arise be just because there are some things they, they don't know and very understandably don't know about this group of patients. People will think, oh, I guess I know enough. I'm familiar with stories in the media. I have a relative who's transgender. But I think, especially as you say, clinicians want to ask themselves, do I really know what I need to know about this group? And in particular, what they face in healthcare. What's going to go wrong for them if something is going to go wrong? And how do I keep that from happening in my work with them? Shane, if I did something incorrectly, started off on the wrong foot, what is the best way to address that situation? That is a great question and a question that comes up all the time because people are human. Once in a great while, it is, it is entirely possible that a clinician, someone else in healthcare will misgender 
a patient. And I always say the important thing, no matter how embarrassed you feel, or <laughs> I've talked with people in this situation, no matter how much you might want to go run and hide, or maybe ask another staff member to, to come in and, and talk with a patient for you, what works the best is to go right back to that patient and quietly and privately say something like, oh, I got that wrong. I am so sorry. Let me be sure to get that right next time. Can you just remind me of exactly the name or the gender, depending which it is, you'd like me to call you by? I want to be sure to get this right. And Kevin, what I find is when people go right over right away and, and say very sincerely, I want to get this right. I'm really sorry. The overwhelming majority of patients are really forgiving. If they feel like that was just an accident, you're well-meaning, you're right over here uh, talking with me about it quietly and privately, often things can go, in fact, even better because there's been a personal connection made. Dr. Jameson Green, could you introduce yourself to our listeners, please? My name is Jameson Green. I am an author and an educator, and I have worked for a very long time with the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, serving on their volunteer board of directors for 15 years, including a term as president. Jameson, what were you learning as an early advocate of quality health care for the transgender community? I was concerned more not just with transition-related care, but just with basic health care, because more and more I kept hearing stories as I became more familiar with other trans people, because it was very difficult in those days for trans people to come together in any kind of organized way. Um, as I as I learned more, was exposed to more people, because uh, I actually originally thought... N- this would be so simple because most people perceive me as male anyway. So I was just going to quote unquote, have a sex change and then go home and mow my lawn. You know, it was not, not a big deal. It wasn't going to change much in my life, but in fact it ended up changing everything in my life. And um, partly because of, of the advocacy that I found myself uniquely positioned to undertake. And what advocacy initiative were you first involved in? We had an opportunity in the city of San Francisco to produce a uh, public hearing, which do- which documented the discrimination against transgender people. And in preparation for that, and over time, in meeting more and more trans people, I realized you know these are great people. They're creative. They're intelligent. They're you know some of them have been tremendously marginalized economically, but not all of them. And some they come from all races and all classes. And a lot of them have no mental illness issues going on. So what is all this prejudice about? And why can't people face all of this? And what is it that makes people react so negatively to trans people and have no compunction whatsoever about oppressing them? And I heard stories about people not being able to get access to basic medical care for things like bronchitis or in the emergency room with a broken leg and and so many problems and people being beaten, actually assaulted in doctor's offices when they revealed the fact that they were transgender. It was It was just appalling to me that 
that we had to live with like this. And that I also saw a tremendous amount of shame and fear that people placed on themselves because of that level of oppression. And I just finally came to the point where I don't think that's right. I need to look at myself and see if I am living with that level of fear and shame. I don't want to live like that. And I don't think any of us should have to. And I am going to be open about who I am and I'm going to start educating about our population and I'm not going to take no for an answer. Help us to understand what the healthcare experience is like for the transgender individual and what you think would be important for healthcare professionals to understand. It's true that people often think of a a transgender transition as something that is a manifestation of confusion or delusion or various other strangely labeled things. But for most trans people that I've met, and I believe me, I've met thousands, it's a very, very deeply spiritual process. And the fear and trepidation that they confront in coming to grips with the fact that their spirit is one thing and their body is another is profound and meeting it in the place where one truly lives and acknowledging it and knowing that you are now present with that spirit that is your authentic self is a phenomenal experience and it once you step over the threshold to embracing that spirit, and I will say it is a spirit, it is your psyche, it is who you are. And accepting yourself finally in the face of everyone telling you that's not who you are because of what they see, they see your body. Your body is not you. Your body is not your spirit. And it's not your psyche. It's only when people open their eyes and see you, the trans person, being yourself. And they, if they can realize, if they can actually do that and see you, they can realize that you really are who you said you were. You did know. They didn't believe you. But now they see you and they welcome you. That's what everyone prays for. Jameson, in talking about our podcast series, you have mentioned some other episodes that could be helpful for clinicians regarding transgender care. So I really liked a a couple of the podcasts that you have on the Ethics Lab um, that I think clinicians should listen to if they haven't already listened to or listen to again if they have in the context of transgender medicine. And the first one was whole person care, and that is focused on end-of-life decisions, end-of-life care. And I thought it was a beautiful, beautiful podcast all by itself, but there's so much in it that speaks directly 
to transgender care because they talk a lot about transactional medicine and how unsatisfying it is to practice transactional medicine, which is a lot of what we have in the United States in clinical settings. It doesn't make room for the patient's story. And that leads to interactions and and decisions, medical decisions, clinical decisions that are based on unchecked assumptions. And that is so true about transgender experience. And then the other one that I really like that I think has a lot of impact for transgender cares, the one on moral distress and moral resiliency. And again, listen to that with the thought of transgender people in the back of your mind about how do we approach what are the clinical issues that we deal with with transgender people and or what might I do in my clinic if I saw a transgender person or if I if I thought I saw a transgender person you know how would I respond that podcast moral distress and moral resiliency has a lot to say to you Dr. Colton Sanama, could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, my name is Dr. Colt Sanama, and my pronouns are he and they. I work as a psychologist and as a primary care physician, and my expertise is in gender care and transgender patients. I'm wondering if you have a story or two Mm -hmm. that just exemplify some of the most inspiring stories or experiences you've had as a transgender healthcare provider. So I was taking care of a, I believe, 15-year-old um, who came in to see me for gender care. And this is when I was in medical school, and I was helping to start the first gender care center we had um, down at my school. And uh, the patient came in. Mom accompanied the patient. Um, he, used he pronouns. He had multiple suicide attempts. The mom was very worried. Um, that her kid was going to die, that she was going to lose him. Um, this kid actually um, was assigned female at birth and has had been raised as a girl and actually had grown a beard on his chin without any hormone therapy whatsoever. Um, and so when I was seeing this kid, I was, you know, I was even wondering, are we getting hormones somewhere? Like what's going on? But when I listened to their story, this kid had been so depressed for so many years and was wearing so many different like hoodies to try to make a flat front, if that makes sense on the chest and just head down shoulders forward. And, you know, when I was doing the exam and I, I would just see so many different cuts on the wrists, on the legs Um, I was just, I was very worried about this kiddo. And unfortunately, this is very common for a lot of the patients that I'm seeing. And mom was very worried about supporting transition. And what if this isn't right? Because my kid is so depressed and maybe this will make them more depressed. And I just don't want to lose my kid. So we made sure, you know, that we had a team approach to care, that we had supportive counseling, not just for the kiddo, but for mom and the kiddo. Um, I think it's super important that families uh, do counseling work, not just the trans person, and so we, we eventually decided that starting testosterone was appropriate in this case. And the reason why was because the individual was saying, I want a deeper voice. I want more hair on my face. I want to be perceived as a man. I know I'm a guy. I know this has been wrong. And most of why I want to die is because I can't be who I am. 
So I said, look, mom, anytime we start hormones, it's always like we start any medicine. It's a trial. We don't know how people will respond. We have good evidence that many people respond very well to this medicine. And so I said, why don't we do a three-month trial? Why don't we see how things go? Do your counseling. We'll do the hormones. We'll see what happens. This kid came back in three months, and I had never seen the kid smile until that day. And mom was crying this time, but instead of crying in the ways that she had cried in the previous visits, she was crying because she told me I, I gave her child back to her. Dr. Cold, from your colleagues who are engaged in transgender care with you, uh, what are you hearing? What are you paying attention to? So in terms of what is needed to take good care of my community and what gender care needs to look like, I think it's really important that it really centers in primary care, just like general health care for everyone else. Um, there are so many needs that many of us have, and just like any other person, some of us are homeless, some of us are not, some of us have jobs, some of us do not, some of us are being abused, others of us are not. Guess what? Just like all people. And so realizing that when we're talking about transgender care, there's all of these side like transgender services, which are nice and which we, it can be helpful to have specialized services, but it's really important to remember that we are humans and just like everyone else, we need basic primary care. And I do believe now that I'm a primary care provider, that primary care providers are best set up to linkage of services. So if this person needs a social worker to help them make sure they have housing or food or transportation, et cetera, which we are much more likely to need in this population, again, because of a lot of negative experiences. If you are kicked out of your house, guess what? That means you're homeless. If you're homeless, you're much more likely to get into trouble with drugs, to get uh, HIV, all sorts of issues. And so we're gonna have higher rates of disparities there. So we're gonna need the primary care doc to take care of the medical pieces, but also to get us connected with social services. Not all of us, but many of us will come in needing behavioral health services. So I think it's really important to realize that trans care needs to be thought of as primary care and hormone therapy is also very much primary care. And then from there kind of reaching out to then get connected to the other services that we may need. I think the other piece is making sure that we're thinking about trans care as trauma-informed care. And so whenever I'm working with trans folks and I'm thinking about the physical exam, I realize that there may be dysphoria that a person is experiencing and they may not, it, just reaching out and putting my stethoscope on their chest like I just easily do with any other patient may actually not you know, be doing what I wanted to do. Uh, they may not want their chest touched. And so there's all sorts of different pieces that we have to think of. And so what I do is I use trauma-informed care principles that the CDC puts forth, and I empower the patient to make their own choice. Would you like me to put this stethoscope on your chest, or would you like to hold it there? And then the same thing happens. So there's just teeny tiny alterations that we make to care that we work with when we work with traumatized populations that need to be at the center of trans care. So individualized care, person-centered and trauma-informed care, and really based on the individual's individual needs. Dr. Lynn Frazier, could you introduce yourself to our listeners, please? I'm Lynn Frazier. I'm a psychotherapist in private practice in San Francisco and have been for 
the past 40 plus years with a specialty of working with trans people. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm also past president of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health and uh, former co-chair of the Global Education Initiative and co-chair of Ethics Committee at WPATH. What are the claims that are not based in fact that are having a harmful effect in offering quality health care to the transgender community? The idea that this is a mental illness, that this is uh, a condition that can be cured, and by cured, I mean that there's something called reparative therapy where you can take a person who claims to be trans and turn them into a heteronormative individual via psychotherapy because it's a mental illness. That has never been true. This uh, is just a, a normal or normative part of the population, gender diversity. And that is certainly no longer, I mean, we have removed it from um, ICD and it is in process of being removed from DSM-5. Those are the manuals of mental disorders because it's not a mental disorder. That said, we still have to figure out ways to provide medical treatment, including mental health treatment, because even if the condition itself does not need mental health treatment, the result of years of stigma um, and trauma has an impact on an individual so that the majority of trans people would appreciate at least having access to mental health. So that is it. It's the, it's the, the belief that this condition is, is a mental health disorder and all of the things that accompany that very harmful. And what's so harmful then as a result of that, people are bullied and teased. And there's some, I think you've probably heard the term microaggressions, even if somebody is not intentionally uh, harming a trans person. It's just an ongoing, they're just an ongoing, it's relentless. This is what people talk about, this relentless being other. Again, one of the biggest issues that people talk about is that it's so hard to imagine what it's like to be trans. The only thing you do with it is other it and make it a mental illness, which it's not. Our final guest is Sister Luisa de Ruin, a Catholic nun, a Dominican Sister of Peace, She has been offering spiritual direction and accompaniment with transgender individuals across the country for over 22 years. Sister Louisa, what have you learned that accompaniment requires from you? One of the big learnings for me was to not to impose my own assumptions. I needed to be really as careful as I could and do my own homework and do my own searching about what assumptions I am laying on them that are my assumptions. Um, My assumptions about faith, I mean, because that's the angle from which I was coming at it. I mean, I, I met with, I've walked with many people who are not just Catholic by any means, probably only half of the transgender people I've walked with all these years were Catholic 
ever Catholic. They were not Catholic. Some didn't, were not comfortable with the word God. And so, and understandably so, how they would not be comfortable with the word God. And so how to talk about those realities, spiritual realities that can resonate with their lives in language that means something to them. That's where I needed to cross the divide to where they are. My being a missionary for many, many years, my congregation was a missionary community. That has served me very, very well to take the posture in life that I don't expect people to come to where I am. They don't have to stand on my turf. I have to go to their turf. I have to go where they are safe, where they are comfortable, and where I may not feel comfortable. But if I'm going to walk with them, I have to go, I have to take their walk, not make them go on my path. I go their path. Given the spiritual direction that you have offered to transgender individuals, what would you say is their unique spiritual journey? The most profound spiritual question is, who am I? That's for all of us, not just for transgender people, but for all of us. Who am I? Who am I? But for them, that is the upfront daily question. Who am I as a human being? Um, and that's a profoundly spiritual question. And I learned how courageous, what, what courage it takes, what honesty it takes, what, what work it takes, um, what persistence, what patience, um, to do the hard work of self-knowledge, to be able to say, this is who I am in the face of everybody else in their world telling them, no, that's not who you are. That's just who you think you are, but that's not who you are. We know who you are. We'll tell you who you are. Um, to watch people, to be part of that profoundly sacred journey of their coming to claim for themselves this is who I am. This is who God made me. It's, it has been profound. It has been the greatest privilege of my life. Appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflections. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. Thank <laughs> you.